We turn to reading God's Word, and we turn to the letter of Paul to the Philippians this evening, to Philippians and chapter 3. We're going to read the whole of that chapter, and uh, it starts on page 1181. Uh, the, uh, the, the text on the screen is simply the, uh, the, the sermon text, but we're going to read the whole of the, the chapter uh, from verse 1, Philippians 3 and verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus And put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. 
Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory, they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Please turn back a few verses to verse 15 of chapter 3, where Paul says to these Philippians, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. We've spent three weeks so far thinking in the evenings about the subject of Christian maturity, about why it is really the great goal of the ministry of Paul and the apostles in the New Testament. It encapsulates what Paul is working towards as he pastors, ministers to the churches that he is concerned about. Oh, for that day when he will be able to present all these churches mature in Christ to God the Father. We've seen how we, as Babes in Christ, but as hungry, growing children should desire the pure milk of the word, that we may grow, we should want to mature. And we saw last Sunday evening how it is the very purpose of God himself that he will and surely must bring his people to maturity. But let's start now looking a little bit at what maturity really is looks like. Can we find a real example of a mature Christian and say, look at this person. Take a good look at this person's life and character. Here is a mature believer. Well, the answer is that we can. We do so in this prime example of the Apostle Paul himself. When he says here in verse 15, let those of us who are mature, he obviously implies, without any sense of, of, of vain boasting or drawing attention to his own accomplishments, but he simply states a fact that here is, by God's grace, a man who is a mature believer. And that should be of great interest to us to look at such a person. But what is it? What feature is it of Paul that we particularly notice in this verse. And we see that Paul says, 
let those of us who are mature think in this way. In what does Christian maturity essentially consist? It consists in having the right mind. In another place, of course, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks there about us being conformed to the image of Christ and about our minds being transformed, being transformed by God himself. Well, it's a similar idea that we have here. What is the mindset of a mature believer? What is the worldview? What is the mental orientation and apparatus? How should a mature Christian actually think? Now, I want to tackle this by doing something that may seem rather unusual. I want to look at this subject backwards. And you say, well, what do you mean backwards? Well, let me put it to you like this. If you are embarking on any major project, if you are building a great structure, if you're planning a great performance, if you're purposing some great social function with all manner of catering and uh, visitors and decoration and performers and uh, speeches, you begin at the end in your planning. And you say, this is what we want to achieve. You don't start by planning at the beginning. You think about the end product that you want to be realized. And you say, that's what we are aiming at. And that is the way that Paul is thinking here. And it's the way that I intend to look at the mind of Paul tonight and maybe over the next two or three Sunday evenings. So we start tonight with the destination, the destination that the Apostle Paul is working towards. Where is he going? Where are we going? And then after that, we think about the direction of how we set our faces as we make our journey there. That will come another time. And then after that, we think about the very dedication that is required in uh, setting our faces to go in that direction. And with dedication come other Ds like devotion and disposition, which may or may not feature in weeks ahead. But anyway, we are thinking about beginning at the end, the destination. And so please look particularly at verses 20 and 21 this evening, where Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself and what's paul doing here he is looking forward He's gazing into the future. He is anticipating the final, settled, never-ending state that our God will bring about for all who belong to Jesus Christ. He is looking forward to the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead in Christ when Christ himself 
will return from heaven to earth. And he is saying, this is a great day. This is the greatest of days for those who love and look forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ. It will be a day of incomparable transformation. The day when our body, notice that he says in verse 21, uh, our lowly body, singular. There's a sense there of uh, not perhaps so much the corporate body of Christ, so that may be included, but all of us have a lowly body. We have a lowly body now. But that body will be changed in the twinkling of an eye to be like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. A body that was resurrected. A body in which he lives forever. A body which is imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. A new body. A body designed and suited for eternal life in a new age which is uncorrupted by sin and the fall and the decay and disease and death of this present life. Now the Apostle Paul, we understand, had plenty of reason uh, perhaps to think about his own lowly body. What was going through his mind when he wrote these words, I wonder, in verse 21? Maybe he was thinking about his own physical weakness. There's a suggestion which seems quite plausible that Paul, like many of us here, suffered from poor eyesight, had a defect in his eyes. He may have thought about how the Corinthians mocked Paul's physical appearance, and they made no bones about that. His letters are weighty and strong, they said. But his bodily presence is weak. He's nothing to look at. He's really a very modest person for you to set your eyes on. He's nothing. He's no one. He's really, he's quite missable in a crowd. And what's more, his speech is of no account. Paul does not seem to have been a great orator in certain respects. He was regarded with disdain and dismissal by many people. Well, Don't we all know something of this lowly body? We all suffer from defects in our bodies and our minds. And the two overlap. There's so much attention at the moment, isn't there, on mental health and failing mental health and this this series of of programs with uh, Nadia. Is it Nadia, This, this... Bake Off chef who uh, was on television the other week and others suffering from psychosis and depression and all these things. We know our bodily weakness. We know our mental frailty. We know our creaturely limitations. We know how vulnerable we are to injury, illness of different kinds. We live in mortal bodies, but not for long. The best is yet to come. And everything about your body and mine that distresses and depresses us will be over. We are destined for glory. But that glory is not simply something for us to to speculate about, to wonder about. 
We're given a direction. We're given something specific to hang on to. Because Paul's great central concern here is that his attention, his devotion, are fixed on the resurrected Jesus Christ himself. Paul, sorry, Jesus has already been resurrected in this glorious body. Why? To be the pattern for all who will follow, for all who are in Christ, for all believers. Jesus in his risen resurrection body is the first fruits, the first crop, the guarantee of the overwhelming harvest which is to come. And when he returns and is seen by every eye, then the dead in Christ will rise first and they will in the twinkling of an eye be transformed and then those who are left will likewise be transformed and caught up to be with the Lord forever. That's the destination that Paul is setting his eyes on, his weak, failing eyes, his poor body that seems to have been uh, quite weakened in many ways. He's thinking it won't always be like this, and it won't be for you or for me either. The things we don't like about our minds and our bodies and our lives and our limitations, the things that we've gone to see the doctor about and we've taken medication for and we've had treatment and we wish that this problem would go away, and it will all be changed. There'll be no frailty because we will all be like the eternal resurrected Jesus Christ. That's the first great destination. And then the second one that we see. Our eternal home with Christ. Our eternal resurrection body is like that of Christ. Our eternal home is with Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says here in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. What is a citizen? A citizen is a member of a city, somebody who belongs to that city, someone who identifies with that city, someone who has business in that city, somebody who moves around that city with familiarity and with pleasure and with joy and says, I know these streets. I know these squares, I know these buildings, I know these gates, I know these towers, I know these parks, I know these people, I know the mayor of this city, I know the politics of this city. This is my home. I live here. I belong here. This is where I lay my hat and find my home. And we all have, don't we? When I say the word Home, some picture will come into your mind, something instinctive, something primitive, something almost visceral of what home means. I hear the word home and I think of, I can't help but think of driving along the A141 through Huntingdonshire uh, up to Warboys and you go over a little hill, it's a very small hill, there are very small hills in that part of the country. Then ahead of you you've got the flatlands of the Fens leading there through Chatteris to March to Wisbech to Kings Lynn to Peterborough to Ely and you've got that whole area and it's flat and it's crisscrossed with dikes, it's very unattractive, it's full of tractors and crops but it's home to me. 
not lived there fully for well over 30 years, but it's still home to me in some sense. It's a place where one's roots are, where the earliest memories are, associations, affections belong in our home. But is that our home? Substitute your own home, whether your home is Scotland or Wales or the Caribbean or Africa or Poland or Sicily or wherever you're from or South Africa, whichever country you're from. But brothers and sisters, fellow citizens, we have a better home. The Bible says so. Our continuing city is to be with Christ. The American singer Michael Card, I don't know if he's still around, he's been around a long, long time. He has a line in one of his songs which describes Christians in this way. Belong to eternity, stranded in time, and weary of struggling with sin. Well, we belong to eternity. And the eternal Lord is our home. The eternal Lord, where he is, is our destination, our hope, our greatest joy. To be where Christ, who is our life, is. And when he appears, we will appear with him in glory and that will be home for us. When we are with Jesus, face to face, sitting with him, talking with him, being with him, and with us, all the saints, all the Grove Chapel people from all the centuries, and all the people who are faithful believers from every church across the world in every period of time. That's what we are looking forward to. We're not there yet. We won't be there in this present body either. Some of us are nostalgic for an earlier age which has long since passed away if it ever existed at all. Some of us think if only I could return to 19 or 20 if you're younger fill in the rest of the years. We remember endless sunny golden days of childhood. Sweet innocence, smiles, laughter and song and swimming pools and ice creams and holidays, more and more sunshine. Yes, without any dark menacing clouds. But we can't turn the clock back. And even if we could and step back to those years, we would find that those days were not quite as sweet and innocent as we might imagine that they were. And then other people might think, well, that's not the way to go. You can't look back. Look forward. But look forward in this life, in the here and now. We can realize some kind of utopia in this present world. We can dream of a happier, safer, more just, more equal, maybe more green and clean society where poverty and war and suffering and misery have all been banished by some great political revolutionary process, the kind of ideas of 
of men like William Morris and uh, Engels and some of these people in the, uh, the turn of the 19th and 20th century. A socialist utopia. Many young people will have these dreams. They might need time to entertain these dreams before realizing that they are only dreams. The young William Wordsworth, in the time of the French Revolution, those famous words of Wordsworth, bliss it was in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Oh, back in the 1790s, everything was changing. We were so excited about the future, but did it last? They're only dreams. They're only dreams. Anything in this world with sinful people under heaven now are only dreams. The Apostle Paul has learned to see that there can be no full, final, perfect world in its present state. We are all groaning in our frail, sin-sick, corrupt, mortal bodies. And this whole world, likewise, in harmony, is creaking and groaning in futility, awaiting for the day when the Son of God will be revealed from heaven, and then, and only then, will there be that true paradise. It doesn't come by earthly means. It comes only through the agency of heaven, through Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. That's our glorious eternal city. It lies ahead. But we have a final point that we must see this evening, which is another part of our destination. Our complete salvation in Christ. Notice how Paul says also in verse 20 that from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now stop and think about those words for a moment and try and understand what is Paul saying here. We await a Savior. We are waiting for a Savior. Hang on a minute. I thought we already had been saved. I thought the Savior had already come. Didn't you? Didn't the Savior come to Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago when the angels came and shouted and sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men with whom he is pleased? Wasn't that the Savior? Didn't wise men follow a star that led them to the house where Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus lay? Wasn't he the Savior then? Didn't Jesus save us when he died on the cross and said, as we thought a few Sunday mornings ago before Easter, it is finished, it is accomplished, it is completed. The work of salvation is done. Aren't we saved now by his death and resurrection? So how can Paul possibly talk here about awaiting a saviour? What's the answer to that conundrum? The answer is this. Salvation works in different tenses. Salvation has a past tense. 
Jesus Christ saved us. When he came into this world and when he died and rose again, he saved me. He died for me. Jesus Christ saved me in the present. When I heard the gospel, the word of God, and I believed to the saving of my soul, his salvation worked now. I am saved. There's no question about that. By the grace of God, if your faith is in Christ, you are saved. Salvation past, salvation present. But there is a future aspect to salvation. Jesus is going to save you and me. My body as well as my soul. And the bodies of all his people. And indeed the whole universe. It's certain. It is sealed by the blood of Jesus and the word of God. But it hasn't happened yet. But it will. And let's think again about this subject of maturity. Let me put it to you in this way. The Apostle Paul, as he goes through his life and his ministry is clearly thinking ahead. He has his eyes set on this glorious eternity. And he has his eyes set on what we might call future maturity, by which we mean a new creation where everything in the old creation that is spoiled and fallen and sinful and decaying and dying and all the rest of it has passed away. Paul's spiritual eyes are forever looking ahead to that future maturity. That is what we need to be doing. And what is Paul's attitude as he looks towards that future maturity? Well, next Sunday evening, Lord willing, that's what we want to look at. That Paul is craning his neck, that Paul is looking up and that Paul is striving forward and pressing on and running on. He has his eyes on the goal. He has his eyes on the finishing line. He has his eyes on the trophy and the medal and the laurel and the victory parade. And that is what keeps him going. He's straining forward. He's pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His longing eyes are fixed there. And that is what we can call tonight the attitude of present maturity. What is it to be mature now as a Christian? This is not by any means the only answer, but it is a very important answer. Present maturity is the spiritual mindset and orientation of a believer who is straining forward to what lies ahead. The author to the Hebrews really makes that to be his theme in so much of that letter, particularly in chapters 11, 12, and 13. Hebrews 13, verse 14 says this, For here... We have no lasting city, but we seek the city 
that is to come. What can we say about all those heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with Abel and going through Enoch and Noah and Abraham and, and Moses and the judges that are mentioned and David and Samuel and the prophets and then those anonymous men and women at the end who are living in the caves and holes of the earth who are subject to all sorts of privations and difficulties in this life who suffer the way that they do. What is true about every single one of those men and women? It's what's true of the Apostle Paul here. His eyes are looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and architect is God. For here we have no lasting city. Now let me just pause and say we do have a city. We do have a city. We are exiles in this city. You remember how the exiles in Babylon were told by Jeremiah, don't just sit there with your arms folded saying, well, we're away from Jerusalem, we're not at home, and uh, what's the point of being here? We may as well just give up now. No, says Jeremiah, seek the peace of the city to which God has sent you. You're going to be there for 70 years, for a lifetime, and that's true for us. You live in London Seek the peace of London. Contribute to London life. Get to know the streets and squares and parks and towers and people of this great city. There's so much to find here, but it's no lasting city. It's no eternal city. Seek its good, but always have your eyes fixed on where your real home is. And that's not London or any other city in this world. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the celestial city. It's where your names are enrolled even now. It's where Jesus Christ is. It's where God and his angels are. And this is a mature attitude with which to live this life. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. And finally, why do we seek it? Because the glory of this city is the glory of the prince, the king, the lord and master of that city. The one whom we will see with our own eyes. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Emmanuel, God with us. He came from heaven to seek and to save his holy bride. That like in all the best fairy tales, he might come and swoop her away and take her to the golden towers and the wide squares and avenues and boulevards and parks and paradises and ever-flowing rivers and orchards of the new Jerusalem where she belongs, where you and I really belong. That's our home. Our home is to be with Jesus. That's why Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Paul, what do you mean by that? I mean, Paul, do you, do you see Jesus with your own eyes every day of your life? Well, we know 
There were at least two occasions, weren't there, when Paul saw the face of Jesus. He saw him on the road to Damascus. And we read that Jesus came and stood by Paul as he was facing trial uh, in Rome. And there were perhaps other occasions too when Paul was taken up to the third heaven and saw indescribable things. But Paul, like us, for the most part, he walks by faith and not by sight. But it's faith for a time until we really go home. And then it's sight, sight, sight all the way. We will see him. We'll be home with him. That the face of Jesus, the smiling, welcoming face of your Lord and Savior will welcome you home and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome home, brother. Welcome home, sister. Come, you've come back. You've come to your wedding day and mine. This is your everlasting home. Here you belong. Here you will never depart. Here you will never have to leave me and bid a sorry farewell. This is your home and mine, for I says Jesus. I'm delighting to be with you as much, far more than you are even delighting to be with me. This is what keeps the Apostle Paul going in his life and ministry. The mind, the heart, the attitude of a mature believer in Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain when I will know Christ even more closely than I ever could during my earthly life. We'll pray together. O Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you, the Son of God, and we say... O Lord, who hears our prayers, who knows our hearts, we were made for you. And even the bumps and twists and turns, the days of sadness and pain, the reversals, the disappointments, the days of sickness, the days of sorrow, they are all intended, O Lord, that we should know and sense our need of you. O Lord, this is not our home. O Lord, deliver us, we pray, from ever feeling too at home in this world as if it were our permanent settling place. O Lord, we are here to remain for as long as you call us and to seek the good of your people and the glory of your name. But Lord our God, please pull our hearts with ever more pungent longings in the direction of heaven, in the love and adoration and enjoyment of Jesus Christ our Savior, whom we will one day see with our own eyes, for we know that our Redeemer lives, and that one day he will stand on the earth as we will, and our eyes will see him, And then we shall be changed and transformed to be like him. And then our joy and his joy will be full in a way that we cannot yet see. But Lord, secure and strengthen your pull upon our heart's affections that we may live as mature believers, as Christians who are grown up and growing up in this present life. We ask Hear the cries of our hearts. 
which we bring in his name. Amen.